Hey you, wherever you are in the world right now, thank you so much for being here with me. We know that we're living in some crazy times and we know that the world is changing. So let's create a bridge as we travel through one another's countries, removing all the labels and coming together as one people, finding our home in one world. And that is why the signature conversation today is so important. Start the conversation, a conversation around suicide. Today, I welcome my guest speaker, Frank King. Hi, Frank. Hey, hey everybody around the world. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. I know we have a really heavy topic to talk about, but I know that you also have this really unique way of having this conversation. So with so much gratitude, thank you for being with the show today and for our audience. And um, I'm just filled with gratitude because I know this is such a necessary conversation for the world to hear and going into this space is not always easy or, you know, to hear, but also to digest. So I just really appreciate you spending this time with us today. So if you can, Frank, um, just share with the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I am a comedian. Um, occasionally somebody will say to me, tell me about yourself. I go, well, I'm a comedian. And they go, no, no, not what you do, who you are. Well, at the risk of being redundant, I'm a <laughs> comedian. My mom was funny. My sister is funny. My dad was funny. It's just, it's in my DNA. I told my first joke in fourth grade. Everybody laughed. The teacher was hysterical. I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a comedian. 12th grade, they had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up. I did. I won. And I was going to be a comedian. I told my mother, who was big into education. She goes, son, you go into college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You could be a goat herder for all I care, but you are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, got two degrees, actually, and then moved to San Diego with my high school sweetheart. And we got married, and I did what she wanted me to do. I sold insurance, worked for a firm that her father worked for, a different branch, but same firm. And uh, and just by chance, there was a branch of the world-famous comedy store in San Diego, in La Jolla, actually, California. And I went twice to open mic to see what the competition was like. And the third time, I got up. And I middle of my five-minute set, I thought, I am home. I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. And... Day after Christmas, 1985, went on the road. I had 10 weeks booked. Asked my girlfriend if she wanted to come along just for the ride, figuring she'd say no. She said yes. So we gave up our apartment and our jobs, and we were on the road together doing stand-up and comedy clubs for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Seven years. Opened up for Rosie O'Donnell, Ellen DeGeneres, Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, back when they were just comics, Seinfeld. And, and uh, by the way, the woman that, that I married is still my wife of 33 years, which is rare for comedians. There's like three comic marriages because comedians aren't easy to live with. Uh, she, would, she would say it's you know, laugh every day, but it's not always a day at the beach. Anyway, so I did comedy in the clubs for about 10 years. I did some radio, and then I made the jump to the corporate comedy circuit after dinner, after lunch, you know, the rubber chicken circuit. And then that crashed and burned in the recession. And we lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and I came very, very close to ending my life. I did not, spoiler alert, end my life. Um, 
But I'd always wanted to not just be a funny speaker, but a speaker who was funny, cover something, a topic, a serious topic, and teach people something. But I could never quite figure out what in the world I had to teach anybody. And then after I came that close, began looking at my family history of generational depression and suicide. Grandmother died by suicide, mother found her, great aunt died by suicide, my mother and I found her. I was four years old, screamed for days. Um, I thought, you know... I could talk about suicide prevention. So I took a class. It's called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer, qprinstitute.com, 12-hour course. And they teach you essentially the signs and symptoms of depression, other mental illnesses, and thoughts of suicide, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, because they believe, I believe, it is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. If you know what to look and listen for, and if you're willing to step out of your comfort zone into the breach and start the conversation, uh, because I believe in when it comes to mental illness, silence often kills. You hear, you hear people say, "Never, he never gave any indication. We had no idea. We had no clue. How come we didn't? Well, you know, you probably are probably eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent, which tells me they want somebody to intervene. And nine out of 10 in the last seven days leading up to an attempt to give hints, verbal, nonverbal, direct, indirect, behavioral. So that tells me that nine out of 10 people want somebody to step up and intervene. And so that's what I teach is how to, how to have that difficult conversation, um, what to look for and then what to say and do. And then, and more importantly, what not to say, what not to do. Um, Cause people care. They just, you know, either they are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or they don't know what to say. So that's where I come in. And, and what I've discovered is, uh, even though most people don't talk about depression and suicide, as my mother would say, in polite company, if you bring it up, almost everybody has a story about themselves, a loved one, a friend. Uh, that's what I discovered early on is that, you know, my job is to go in and be vulnerable, tell my story, because men don't often share things that are emotional. And so see a man on stage telling a story about something that's serious, and I get a little choked up every time I tell the story. Um, being that vulnerable, I read Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. About halfway through, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's my superpower. Uh, and she also says in there, I've said this myself, but not as elegantly as she says, that because of my mental illness, major depressive disorder, and chronic suicidal ideation, I am so comfortable in my darkness that I can sit comfortably with you and yours. And that's, that's valuable to people with mental illness. People always say to me, my friend's depressed. What do I say? Don't say anything. Just actively listen, you know, and sort of co-sign whatever they're going through. So anyway, in 2014, I did my first TED Talk because... Everybody thought of me as a funny guy. So how do you convince them that you could do something serious? My wife said famously, do a TEDx talk. And I said famously, what's a TEDx talk? <laughs> Just by chance, I got an email that week from a TEDx talk in Vancouver, British Columbia. And they said, would you, would you want to apply to do a TED talk? I, I wrote back, I would. So I filled out the application and I got it. And I came out on stage at age 56 as depressed and suicidal and nobody knew my wife, my family, my friends, because people with mental illness often cover it very well. Don't want to burden other people with that kind of thing. But I came out on stage, and then since then, I've done four more TEDx talks, each one on a, on a mental health topic, a different mental health topic. 
And, and now I coach TEDx. After doing five of them, people kept coming to me. Hey, man, help me get a TEDx. My business, my business coach goes, Frank, I know you're doing those for free. That's going to stop. <laughs> so I give the first half an hour for free now or a little more, you know, more or less. My mom was big into give value first without expectation of return. You know, that kind of uh, that Zig Ziglar help enough people get what they want. And maybe in the long run, you'll get what you want sort of uh, thing. So anyway, that's my story. And I've been doing um, since that first TEDx and uh, I've been speaking on suicide prevention, uh, corporation associations, colleges, um, I'm going to just got an inquiry from Portland, Oregon today. It's a, it's a youth mental health group and they want to have a zoom comedy night. And so, you know, who better than the mental health comedian, somebody who speaks their language to, uh, organize the zoom comedy night for the young people. So that's anything amazing. we can do to bring the raid down. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know as we're sitting here today, having this conversation that, Suicide around the globe is at a rate of 30% or thereabout, um, which is really a alarming rate, in my opinion. I know earlier this year it was down in the 20s. So to ratchet up that significantly, it's pretty significant. And I, as you were speaking, I know you kind of uh, ran through this really fast. I know you were four years old and, you know, you had this experience mm-hmm. and you, you said that you'd screamed for days and I, I can't even imagine, you know, what that was like for you. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you had to go, you know, through that experience, but you said something really key that, you know, people are afraid to speak up and, you know, talk, to other people about this, if there's some red Mm -hmm. flags or something that's happening. And I know personally, I've had this experience where I was approached by um, knowledge of someone who was in that space and, you know, calling out for help. And I know personally what I did. And, you know, part of it, as you said, was just listening. But I think that connectedness is so important just to get, you know, in front of them and and help them in whatever capacity of the space that they're sitting in. But if you could, for our audience, if our audience is listening right now, and there's someone that they know that may be in that space, what are some tools that you can offer to them that would help them connect with that person in their life? Well, the, what I teach in my keynotes and my trainings, I've got a three hour, got a, a, up to a three hour CE on suicide prevention. Matter of fact, the state of Washington has mandated that all healthcare providers, chiropractors, nurses, doctors, uh, social workers, all have to have three hours of suicide prevention CE or they cannot renew their license, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Dentist, hygienist, same thing. Um, what I teach is signs and symptoms of depression or other mental illness and thoughts of suicide. Because again, if eight out of 10 are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints, that tells me if we just know what to look for, listen for, and are willing to step up, that we can prevent, uh, we can prevent a suicide. And you don't, have, you don't have to be a clinician to prevent a suicide. Anybody who takes an interest, and this is not therapy, uh, it's just planting seeds of hope is what we're after. So I tell people, well, the signs of depression, just a couple of them are 
withdrawing from social activities, although we don't have many social activities right now, but when we do that kind of thing, people withdraw, they distance themselves or they physically distance themselves by moving. Um, they oftentimes have trouble getting up in the morning, but, but rally in the afternoon, which is dis deceiving. You know, it's either you're worried about them in the morning and then the afternoon, they seem, you know, on top of the world. The, uh, here's one you can spot on Zoom. They're Zoom casual, as I'm wearing today. My button-down casual shirt, no tie, no jacket. But then there's, there's um, depressed casual, which means oftentimes people who have depression let their personal hygiene go. You know, if you look at them on Zoom and you notice their hair's a little dirty and their clothes aren't as clean as usual, it may be because they're having difficulty getting out of bed to hit the shower and then run a little wash. So that is, that is a... That is a big sign and one you can actually spot over Zoom. Um, what I talk about in my keynote is what not to say. Because people say, what do I say at that point? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Here's what you do say. If they, in fact, admit they are you know, suffering with living with depression. Okay, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And you got to mean that. And then here's the biggie. You have to ask them flat out, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, I would recommend you find somebody who can. It's a difficult question to ask. Now, there's an old urban legend that you should never mention the S word, suicide, in front of somebody who's depressed. And I, as a comedian, I love the reasoning it might give them the idea. <laughs> Suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me. It's crossed their mind. Now, let's say they do not admit to um, having thoughts of suicide. How would you know? Well, there are signs. Um, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their writing, their artwork, their music, getting their affairs in order. Um, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they're going to go to when they're gone. And giving away a pet is the top of the pyramid and giving away prized possessions because mm -hmm. they want to make sure that the animal is taken care of. There's a counterintuitive one that I think is very dangerous is that they've been depressed for a long time and now they're happy, happy without any particular reason. And you're happy because, dear goodness, they're finally happy. Well, here's the problem. They may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is finite. A lot of people, I think, are unaware that the majority of suicides, the person doesn't necessarily want to kill themselves. They simply want to end the pain. I just wanted to end the pain when I came so close. And so um, here's another myth, I believe, if I can be a myth buster for a minute. You hear people say, suicide's a cowardly act. You know, taking your own life, it takes a lot of nerve to take your own life. And the second thing you hear is, it's selfish. Well, in the mind of the person who is thinking of suicide, because they say, well, weren't they thinking about the impact on their friends and family? As a matter of fact, they were. I was. It's, it's, it's um, something in, in suicidality called burdensomeness. They honestly believe, I honestly believe, that, that I was a burden and that my wife would be better off without me because I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. And if I died, 
uh, she would get the million dollars and she would be restored financially. The bankruptcy would, would be as if it never happened. She'd be brokenhearted, but she wouldn't be broke anymore. So irrational as it is, that you know, the, the person is a burden. And I'm sure if you ask the people that they were worried about being a burden to, they would go, no, 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 no. You're not a burden. No, no, no. But that's, that's what's going on in the mind of the person who is contemplating suicide. They truly believe that they are a burden. Now, let's say they admit to having thoughts of suicide. The question comes up, what do you do? Well, here's what you say. Do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, what is your plan? And if it's detailed, you know, time, place, method, your job is to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Or there's, for younger people, there's now a text line. In the United States, you text the word help or connect to 741-741, and there'll be somebody roughly your age as a young person on the other end, because young people seem to be more forthcoming in text than they are, like us old people, <laughs> I'm 63, on the phone. So... And if, if the person won't pick up, will not pick up the phone and you believe they're actively suicidal, you pick up the phone, you call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and the volunteer will do their best to get the phone in the hand of the person who is in crisis. Now, the question comes up, when do you dial 911? If they're an immediate threat to themselves or somebody else, you have no choice but dial 911. Now, that's going to buy them, generally, a three-day involuntary detention order and they're going to be in a, a mental health facility locked down for three days with no belt or shoestrings, but they'll be alive. Now, let's say they have a plan, but it's not particularly detailed. What do you do? And this, by the way, is not in any psychology book. A psychiatrist friend and I came up with this. He also lives with chronic suicidal ideation. I say to them, well, are you, are you going to kill yourself? Just like that. And if they say no, then I say, Okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to why, you know, it's my family, my friends, my pets, whatever it is, make them give voice. And if you ask me, oh, Frank, you got to kill yourself? You know, you have chronic suicidal ideation. It's always on, you know, it's always there. Here's the thing about chronic suicidal ideation, and there are probably people listening to you and me right now who have this and they may be unaware it has a name every time i've spoken except once somebody's come up afterwards after i described chronic suicidal ideation and and said i didn't know it had a name i thought i was some kind of freak and all alone. chronic suicidal, suicidal ideation means that for people like me my tribe the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. It just bubbles up every time there's a problem. I'll give you an example. When I say small, three years ago, my car broke down. I had, I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. I had a young woman come up to me after a college show. She said, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I don't make you weep. She said, well, you know your story about your car? You know, get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts my entire life. I thought I was some kind of freak and all alone. And I heard you say that out loud. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was not, in fact, alone. And I wept. Okay, here's the reason that, here's one of the reasons I don't kill myself, is that it's sort of like being George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. 
I've been shown what people's lives would be like if I were not there to speak and reassure them that they are not alone. So if I kill myself, I would take all those people with me who never had a chance to hear me speak and let them know they're not, in fact, alone. So that's one of the big reasons I don't because I, I can't. A friend of mine said, you can't live with that. I go, no, I can't die with that. I cannot. I, I just um, had a friend who was in his dad was an AA, uh, raging alcoholic for 40 years. Got to AA, 20 years sober, sober the day he died, and he sponsored umpteen people. And somebody asked him at about the 15-year mark, you going to ever drink again? And he goes, no. And they go, how can you say that? He said, because of all the people I've sponsored and all the people I'm going to sponsor, if I dive back into that bottle, they'll dive back in with me, and I can't live with that. So that would be my why. If you said you're going to kill yourself, no, why? I think it's important that they give voice. You make them give voice out loud to why they're going to stick around. So I, yeah. And I appreciate that so much. I mean, that was so power packed as far as what you offered the audience. And it's just a testament of your purpose in life and why you're here and what you're doing is it, you can hear the passion in your voice. You can hear, (laughs) you can, it just radiates through every, you know, the airwaves. I mean, it's amazing. And I, you know, I know for myself, when I was in this situation, talking to someone about them wanting to end their life, you know, they were just in so much pain. And Mm -hmm. right now, the world is in a lot of pain, people are just experiencing this high level of pain. Um, I've recorded a few shows recently, where people have talked about, you know, being diagnosed with a medical condition, and they feel like that's the only way out, or the woman that I spoke to overseas being in lockdown, and feeling like the only way they can escape, you know, this present state that we're in, where we can't do things, that's the only way out. Um, There's just so many examples where people are using that as their way out. And as suicide rates are ratcheting up around the world, I think it's really important that we're able to kind of peel back the layers and say, there are other opportunities for you besides taking that avenue. And as you said, you know, just like asking the questions and taking a deeper dive with the person. When you, when you hear of when you hear of young people right now, and I know um, this week actually, and I'll share this because I'm sure this is this has happened to someone else as well. Uh, I actually had a, a news feed come through that had shared a that had shared that 11 year old little girl had hung herself, mm-hmm. and it didn't successfully work. So she was brain dead but on life support. And now the parents are, you know, now faced with this decision to take her off of life support. This really grabbed me because I really aware that around the world, young people are really struggling with understanding how to process their thoughts, given that there's not a lot of control of what's going on in their life. You know, they're, they're schooling at home or, Um, maybe not able, you know, to go to school full time, because they're like halfway in the door, halfway out the door, (laughs) you know, all of these things. We're in person, we're not. 
Right, right. And then, you know, it's interesting because their brain development is in such a state that they don't have the cognitive ability to fully understand things the way that adults do. And adults are struggling. So they're not fully, you know, present as far as able to communicate with children exactly what's going on in the world. And then given the child's age, you know, how, how much information is too much and how much do you go into the space with them? So there's a lot of layers to all of this with children around the world. And I just wonder, you know, besides recognizing the signs of depression in some of these things you speak to, I mean, are there other opportunities for parents that they can, you know, really help their children navigate these troubling times. And how do you, I mean, do you recommend anything? Like, do you recommend parents maybe have their children journal to try to, you know, detox the body or the brain from some of these thoughts? And, you know, I mean, what are some suggestions that you may offer up to parents that can help them? Well, I would start with if the child seems to be, or you believe the child perhaps is depressed, I would set up a telemedicine um, appointment and do your best to have them evaluated because it's, you know, knowledge is power. And, and it, it, to find, to figure out perhaps is it, is it situational depression? Is it uh, like the depression I live with, organic? Is it something in the DNA? Um, and then if, if they are, in fact, if it turns out they are, in fact, um, depressed, um, I think, and I, I give this uh, advice to adults, I think everybody needs a self-care plan. We talked about it off the air. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a, TED, a TEDx, I have a um, keynote called uh, Social Distancing and Staying Sane, Don't Worry About Your Mentally Ill Friends. Because those of us who are mentally ill and high-functioning, we almost all have a self-care plan and other techniques. And mine is diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, and in my case, uh, a little medication. And, and um, I also recommend a routine. You know, everybody's routine has been just blown out of the water. You know, the kids aren't going to school or they're at school at the dining room table and the parents are home, not going to work. And they're so what's lacking, I believe, they ask a guy who was in the space station for a year about social isolation. You know, how do you, how? And he said one word, routine. He said, we, uh, I go to bed same time, I get up same time, eat my meal same time. So I think the family should get together. I would even get a whiteboard. You know, if you have lots of family, like kids and parents and maybe three generations in one household and, you know, schedule it out. We all eat at this time. We, you know, we're all at the dinner table. All the uh, devices are off, <laughs> you know. And, you know, this is when we exercise. This is when we binge watch Netflix. This is when, you know, Disney Plus. So that you, you have to control the things you can control, which people with mental illness learn very quickly because we wake up in, a, in, a, in an uncertain world whether there's a pandemic or not. And something I could share with parents who suspect perhaps their child is living with a mental illness, even if it's just situational depression, is that having a mental illness, and a lot of neurotypical, neuronormal people don't, don't quite get this, is like that Greek character Sisyphus. He gave fire to man, and the other gods decided his punishment would be he'd roll. He'd have to roll a rock up a hill every day, and and the the deal was if he could get it over the top of the hill, then he could retire. But every time he got it close to the top, it rolled back down to the bottom. Having a mental illness is is like that. Every morning you wake up, and there's a rock in a hill. 
Some days the rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day there's a rock and a hill. So, you know, parents tend not to want anything to be wrong with their children, tend to blame themselves if something does go wrong, like this young woman who tried to hang herself at age 11. I'm sure the parents, there's a lot of survivor's guilt uh, and wondering what they've done wrong. And, you know, perhaps they, they, they were not aware that she was living with um, even situational depression. And 11, I have a friend who tried it 4, 8, and 12. Um, and it bipolar disorder runs in this family, and he ended up that that was his diagnosis. But yeah, it's and it seems to be younger and younger people are are you know I believe mental health education should begin in middle school. Catch them early because if you catch somebody early with whatever the ailment happens to be, the long term prognosis is far better if you catch those things early. Um, and I, I think, me personally, I did a TEDx on this called Mental with Benefits. Because everybody I've ever met who wasn't completely dysfunctional, who had a mental illness, um, children, teenagers, adults, always had some sort of um, ability that their peers didn't have. I believe mental illness is actually a combination of mental ableness and mental illness and mental ableness. 30 Fortune 500 companies now are hiring people on the autism spectrum for their special gift. They have, they're on the spectrum, but they do one thing extremely well, and including Google, is hiring people on the spectrum because of this one thing they do extremely well. So I believe that with children, if they've got a mental illness, do your best to figure out what the mental ableness is and then wrap your arms around that, enhance it, energize it, celebrate it. Because I believe that would change the frame for the child. You know, you, know, you when, when I did the TEDx, I said to the audience, I'm, I, I don't believe that I am broken. I believe I was made this way. And it's my job to take, you know, the, the, those blessings that I have along with the, the curse of mental illness and, and wrap my arms around that. And, and, you know, let's say a child has OCD. The STEM, I think the IEP, the Individual Education Plan, should truly be individual. Kids got OCD. So I would, the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, every one of those disciplines, every problem to solve in those disciplines has one right answer. One. And so why not put the young person in that STEM program and then steer them on a career path to an industry where they, they value precision and attention to detail. And so the young person, if they go in the, into architecture, engineering, uh, banking, uh, whatever, where they really is to the penny or, you know, it's very precise, then they're rewarded handsomely for this ability that, you know, their peers many of them don't have. Now, if it's dyslexia, STEM is not a good idea because it's just letters and numbers rolling around the page. You know, humanities, arts, multi-dimensional multi complex tasks are fabulous at. So, you know, uh, that's where I would steer the child into those, into those curriculum. Um, and I think you should change the, not only the curriculum, but the teaching method. I've got a friend who taught music, instruments. And he said, Frank, you know, some of the kids 
that I taught, the ones that had ADD, ADHD, were the best musicians. The problem was, if you sit them down in a chair and you ask them to play scales for 50 minutes, in the first 10 minutes, they get better. The next 40 minutes, most of their energy is going <laughs> just to keep their behind in the chair. So he goes, on a whim, I bought a, an egg timer. And I said it for 10 minutes. And I said to the young person, okay, let's play scales for 10 minutes. Then we'll do something else. Egg timer goes off. Okay, now let's practice our breathing for 10 minutes. Practice our breathing. Timer goes off. Now let's practice those two pieces you're going to be playing at the concert on Saturday. Egg timer goes off. He goes, the improvement was amazing because they're not having to spend all that energy to sit still because they know 10 minutes on something else. 10 minutes on something else, which I thought was brilliant. So I think that, that is a message. We need to make the individual education plan truly, I mean, down to the point where I don't think every six-year-old belongs in first grade, you know, and every seven-year-old in second grade. I think, again, we should adjust to fit the child's abilities. Yeah, and that probably is in the distant future. I'm not sure, <laughs> given, <laughs> yeah, no. how, given how yeah. things move, you know, it's not very fast. But, you know, this um, conversation around our children, I am also wondering, too, you know, is this something that we teach the children how to recognize this within our, you know, our social circles? And the reason I bring this up is because, I know for my own children, when they were going through middle school and even high school, they knew of someone who was in the bathroom and they were cutting or they were, mm -hmm. you know, doing self-harm to their bodies. And it, it's such a, a difficult stage of life because, you know, there's so much emphasis on the differences that are made to feel like that they're bad or because of their differences or, you know, those highlighted differences and it just perpetuates the self-awareness of maybe those internal thoughts around why they are feeling different, right? They're being highlighted by the peers. So I just wonder, you know, if this is something that should be more mainstream in conversations among the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, like this is how you can recognize some things in your peers so that they're also alert to how to help one another. Because a lot of times it's like this 11 year old that we were talking about earlier. Nobody had any idea, no idea. So for those parents that are grieving and, you know, had to pull the life support plug on their daughter I mean, they're just shell-shocked and they're going through a tremendous amount of agony and grief. And to your point, you know, that survivor's guilt and all of these, these different things that they're probably questioning looking back in time, uh, you know, is, is part of this educating the children as well as the adults and how to recognize the signs and are, are they capable of handling this kind of information? I'm not sure. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I think if you make it age appropriate, let's say that that uh, the middle school where the 11-year-old attended, the one that, that uh, is on life support, what should be done is they should have someone come in for both teachers, staff, and children, different sessions, and do what's called suicide postvention. Because everyone has questions. Every, every adult probably has survivor's guilt for not spotting it. 
And so you need someone to come in and decode what happened. And, and, and then once you're done with the postvention, then I would say, then you begin with the prevention part of the sessions. So it doesn't happen again, or if it, if it does look like it's going to happen, the young people will, will be able to recognize the signs and symptoms because, because, you know, oftentimes it's a child who saves another child. I, I've got a friend who, whose daughter was in her early teens and one of her peers in her class was doing, I think she was cutting or burning, you know, some sort of non-lethal self-harm, but also was making dangerous noises that she was thinking about ending her life. And so, my friend's daughter marched down to the school counselor and said, look, I think, you know, whatever her name was, is seriously considering suicide. And that's the reason that that young woman who was considering suicide is alive today, because one of her peers stepped up and, you know, took responsibility and marched down to the counselor's office. So I think if we educate, again, beginning in middle school, at age appropriate, you don't want to, you know, don't trigger anybody in middle middle school. Yeah. You know, keep, I mean, we teach them about all sorts of other things, you know, tobacco cessation and drugs and alcohol and, you know, and, and uh, the sex education. And so I think, I think at, at the appropriate level, and I think every, every parent should take what's called um, uh, mental health first aid, mentalhealthfirstaid.org. It's an eight-hour class. They throw in lunch. It costs anywhere from zero dollars to, I think, 25. And it's a, and there's a, a youth one and an adult one. So if you're a parent and you have young children, you take the youth one. And they give you a binder with all, with every, it seems like every mental illness possible, you know, from simple depression through non-lethal self-harm, like cutting, burning, biting, to suicide and it has signs and symptoms and then again uh, what to say what not to say what to do what not to do then resources so and finally there's an outfit called nami national alliance mental illness in ami they've got a chapter pretty much in every county in the country and i've got a friend whose son is schizoaffective has lived with schizoaffective disorder and it was tearing the family to pieces and he found NAMI or NAMI in AMI, National Alliance Mental Illness. And they have a 12-week class for families, parents, on schizoaffective disorder. How do you, you know, what do you say? What don't you say? What do you do? What don't you do? How do you find resources? And they have family-to-family -family counseling. So you get families together who have a child or loved one with schizoaffective disorder. And it saved the family and probably the young man. And here's the best part about the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, everything they do is free. It's all it's volunteer driven. They have a couple of employees, executive director and, and uh, you know, an executive assistant, but everything else, it's all volunteer. And everything they do is absolutely free. So it's, I think if parents educate themselves, you know, nobody wants to think their child is less than perfect, but, and think about this. If 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 uh, parents took these took the first aid mental health first aid class, and let's say they're driving carpool, and they've got more than one child, more than their children in the car, and they hear something or see the sign of something that they've learned to recognize, 
It's called gatekeeper training. You're standing at the gate. You're watching people come and go. And you're as they're going, you're paying attention to everybody coming and going. And it's your job to spot the signs and symptoms, the danger signs, you know, the danger symptoms, and then know what to do. That's incredible. And part of when you were speaking, I'm also wondering uh, the challenges that parents are having right now, because with the homeschooling as, you know, schools are not fully open Mm -hmm. and parents, there's a lot of parents. And I I don't know that the discussion around this is really um, as open as it probably should be. There's a lot of parents that are forced to leave their children to, you know, be home schooling themselves while they're off to work. And I'm not saying, you know, that they're leaving them inappropriately, but, you know, you have a lot of kids who are home all day, you know, on their own. Mm -hmm. And when they're not in that social setting of school and they're more isolated in the setting of being home, I'm just wondering how do we how do we get in front of this? I mean, is this really is this really a conversation where you know parents try to talk more to your children, try to get more you know in the space of understanding where they are with their mental health? Because as you say, right now you know there is a situational thing that's happening around the globe where mm-hmm. everyone is experiencing grief and everyone has, you know, a loss that they're experiencing, but also there's this trauma that's happening because we're, we're constantly being bombarded by the negativity of what we're hearing around the world with the news. So, you know, the kids are also feeling the effects of that. So I just wonder, you know, as part of this process is, is this something that really parents need to shoulder a little bit more to make sure that they're not losing the connectedness, you know, to the, to the outside world, because we are social beings. We're not, we're not getting that as much. Yeah. And you know, zoom, I I can't imagine what the world would be like with a pandemic without zoom and Skype and FaceTime. I mean, I just, <laughs> you and I wouldn't be chatting uh, or we might be chatting on the phone, but not. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to do uh, Dr. Fauci was on the news. I was listening to him talk about Thanksgiving and he recommends that you just keep it to the family unit. Um, and he said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to cook a Thanksgiving Turkey and all the trimmings. And we're going to sit down at the, at the dinner table with the computer monitor and all the extended family is going to be, they're going to zoom in and we're all going to, you know, so we're going to say the blessing and we're all going to dig in at the same time, just as if we were there, you know, and, and hopefully have that conversation, that crosstalk, it won't be, you know, it won't be like it would be if we could all get together, but, you know, make the effort so people don't feel quite so, you know, so isolated. Um, and they suggest, I think, on campus, I heard uh, not a Thanksgiving, but a Friendsgiving. In other words, don't go home for Thanksgiving and, you know, drag the virus to your older, you know, your perhaps your grandparents. Just stay on campus. But the problem with that is, you know, is that some colleges are going, look, go home for Thanksgiving and you're not coming back. We're going to do this at a distance. So, yeah, it's just I think this whole generation is going to be scarred by this. You know, it's going to it's going to define their generation. You know, as the Vietnam War defined the generation just prior to mine, 
you know, and 9-11 and so forth. And, you know, every, every generation has these cataclysmic things that define, you know, that partially defines their generation. I think this, sadly, this is going to be, this is going to be. Now, as a comedian, I've said, the, um, if there's anything funny in this, it would be when children come along and they're, t and, you know, the people that are now parents become grandparents. And their grandchild says to grandpa, grandpa, I have one question. Yes, son. Why do you have a lifetime supply of toilet paper in the shed out back? <laughs> and then they have to explain to them that, well, that's what everybody did, you know, with the, uh... and by the way, it happened again here in Oregon. When the governor said we're shutting down tomorrow, she said it on Friday. My wife works in a grocery store and man, the panic buying began again. The lines out the door at Costco were just apparently amazing. Uh, you know, it's again, I think it's going to have, a, uh, you know, it's gonna, this thing's going to leave scars on, on, you know, the people who have gone through it. It's, you know, the recession plus the pandemic is going to, yeah, the, the world will never be quite the same again. And that's, that's why I think, you know, if, if you, um, you might, might, um, if, if someone's strong in their religion, you know, strong in Christ or whatever, um, I'm not particularly religious, but if I know somebody is struggling and I know they're strong in Christ, then I leverage that. I would say to them, well, look, have you prayed about this? Uh, have you spoken to your minister about this? Well, what do you say you and I and the minister do a Zoom call? Let's form a little team and see if we can't nail this down, you know, and see if we can't figure this out together. So I recommend if there's, if somebody is struggling, you know, um, a mental health professional, another family member, scout leader, a coach, any, any, anyone that the child has respect for and that cares about the child, you know, form a team, you know, let's, you know, we're all in this together. Let's, let's, if we're in this together, let's get in it together and leverage whatever relationships the young person has with, um, you know, with adults who are, you know, positive and positive thinking and, you know, and want to improve the situation. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of adults, you know, it's a difficult place to be to, to go within yourself into that space and really like, go way down and pull out that part of you that's afraid because you do face this fear of, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to do this wrong. I don't want to, yeah. you know, say the wrong words or do the wrong thing or, you know, so, so that part of you as an adult, I mean, I think it's so, it's so important this conversation conversation we're having because exactly what you were saying it's like know how to talk about this and use some of the resources and tools that you suggested I mean you've given some great um, resources you know the mentalhealthfirstaid.org you had mentioned I mean there's so many things that you'd mentioned um, during our conversation that are so impactful but I think it's also important that you know the adults remember that this person that you're working with, you know, even if it's another adult, like they do have a purpose to be here, just like you do, Frank, and reminding that person that you have a reason to be here is so powerful because they literally could take this situation and turn it inside out like you've done and just change the world because we have no idea how many people are going to be changed just having mm. this conversation, you and I. Yep. So 
and, you know, even my own personal story, like I have no idea how many people will be impacted by my personal story, which is why I'm so passionate about getting in front of everybody as well. And I just, you know, it's really interesting because every show that I do, I ask my guest speaker, if I found your earth angel feather on the ground and I picked it up, what would your message to the world be? What would your message be? Start the conversation. And that's brave. Yeah. Be brave. Step out of your comfort zone because we know that eight out of 10, nine out of 10, we can save. By yeah. simply by doing, when I, when I close out my TEDx and my, my keynotes, I say this, the good news is you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can often do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right now. And that is starting a conversation. Yeah. And it's absolutely beautiful. And every single person that's on this planet has a message for the world. And every single person on this planet has a purpose in a reason to be here. And Frank, this conversation has been astounding. (laughs) So it's so necessary right now with the way everything is. And the other day, someone said to me, you know, it's amazing because you're literally walking into this dark space with people and, you know, pulling them out into the light. And I really didn't I really didn't let that resonate when he first said it. And as I've let it, you know, simmer, it's like, wow, I guess I am. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's impactful because as a global humanitarian effort right now, we, we need this conversation to be heard as far and as wide as possible. So I encourage the audience, if you're listening and you know this can help someone, please, please, please spread this message, get this out to as many people as you can. If you have a a school system or education system that could use this as a resource, we encourage you to just get this message out far and wide. Is there anything else you'd like to offer the audience, Frank, before we go? Yes, absolutely. And you can put this in the show notes. Um, And I do this every time I keynote. I put my cell phone number up on the screen and I tell the audience, look, here's the deal. If you're suicidal, call the suicidal suicide prevention lifeline or text the text line 741-741. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my phone number. Because as somebody with mental illness, I'm less likely to be, be judgmental, more likely just to listen and co-sign whatever difficulty they're, they're going through. So you're welcome to, it's 858-405-5653, 505 and like I said, you're welcome to call. People call. Sometimes it's about themselves. Sometimes it's about a loved one. They, uh, you know, they got a question. Where do I find resources? Um, but yeah, it's it's. And I would recommend, by the way, if you reach out to someone and you help them, say on a difficult day, I would a day or so later, reach out again, just to let just to check in, to let them know you care. Again, we're, this is not therapy. I'm not a clinician. All. Catherine and I are here to do is to plant seeds of hope. Absolutely. And I am so filled with gratitude for your time today, Frank, and sitting here with me and having this conversation. And I encourage everyone to just, you know, look out 
after your fellow humans, wherever they are in the space that you're connected with them and just really be in tune to where they're at and uh, do the best you can to wrap your arms around them and love on them and stay connected with them because it's so important. Frank, thank you so, so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for today. This is Catherine Daniels with Retreat to Peace, reminding you to live your authentic life with peace. And as always, Retreat to Peace. We'll see you next time. So welcome back. And holy moly, was that incredible what Frank just shared with the audience and all of his knowledge. I know for A lot of us, there are people in our life right now that are really struggling, and it was really vitally important for me to have Frank on the show, sharing with the audience things that are really impactful and powerful to help one another. I don't take our conversation around suicide lightly. I know people who have personally been affected by this in their life. I know the scars that it leaves, and I just really wanted to do my part to put this out into the world to help everyone. Part of the reason I'm coming back on is offline, Frank and I had a really interesting conversation around where we are today, what's happening today, and he had shared with me something that I thought was really profound, something that took me back a little bit in regards to my understanding and what I thought was actually happening, but what I realized was not correct. So he had shared with me that the population of people that are most greatly affected in today's world right now is actually our young adults. He had shared with me that 11-year-old girls especially are the population of greatest concern. I had shared with him that I have an 11-year-old niece, and that does sound some alarming alarm bells for me personally. And I just asked him what it was around this demographic that was causing this. And he had stated that the experts in the field are trying to figure it out. They don't actually know. But one of the things that they attribute to this is that there is a 40% decline in socialization with their peers. Now, I have a friend who has a young girl in this age group and One of the things that she expressed to me was how important it was that she continued to allow socialization, of course, cautiously, given the state of the world the way it is. But if it came down to whether or not there was a socialization or having dinner, it was chosen that the socialization was a higher priority and she would have dinner when she was done or later in the day or when she was hungry. And some of the rules that had always been adhered to went to the wayside. So I just share this with you because I think it's really important that people know. 
And there has been a shift from young adult males to the young adult girls, females. So please be aware of the people in your life. Keep checks on them and especially the children. And again, just open the conversation like Frank said. Open the conversation among your your families, among your friends, and just continue to persevere. And if you're interested in subscribing to the email list, the ongoing healing toolbox that is individual and unique to each person, please jump on to www.retreattopeace.net and sign up for the email list, get connected, and get connected to the community. There's a lot of people that really need support right now. And the Healing Toolbox is something that is accessible for free and will allow you to gain some tools to help your own inner peace as far as your healing process. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's greatly appreciated. And again, sign up for retreattopeace.net, our email, and I look forward to seeing you next time, having a conversation with our guest, and as always, Retreat to Peace. This is Katherine Daniels. Have a great day.